Our English language has changed considerably over the last several hundred years. There are a lo- there's a long list of words that almost no one uses anymore. I want to give you a couple of examples. There's the word Bible, not Bible, but Bible. And here's a working definition of Bible. It means <coughs> to make a lot of noise when you drink liquids, to slurp. Some of you do that all the time. There's the word gentacular. Not spectacular, gentacular. Well, some of you did this this morning. It means an early morning breakfast. <coughs> Excuse me. And then there's this big long word, cockurophobia. It's a fear of failure. Anybody ever experience a fear of failure? Well, I've got my arm up. I'll mention the next one. Oxter. It's your armpit. And then the word that's in today's title of the sermon. Time to visit Aunt Moyle. The word moyle means hard work. We're living in a time in American society when hard work is almost a thing of the past for many. The welfare state has gone wild. Our government spends way too much of our taxpayer money to support some people who really don't need the support or they may be committing fraud to receive it. Now, there are those who legitimately need support. They need help because of age or disability. But far too many people are taking advantage of a system that is full of fraud and waste. On the other hand, God's Word has so much to say about the value of hard work and about the sin of laziness, about the sanctity of working for your employer with excellence. And that's the key word today, excellence. Serving with excellence as a testimony of God's grace. Today we're going to consider three of Solomon's Proverbs. He wrote a lot about work and about laziness especially. And then we're going to talk about Paul's standard of excellence in the book of Titus. For those of us who want to walk in a worthy way in 2015 in this very practical area of on the job. So if you're there with me, Proverbs 6 Look with me, first of all, at verses 6 through 11. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise, which, having no chief, officer, or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep? Kicking back in the lazy boy? They named that chair after somebody. (laughs) Your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. Another seemingly outdated word used in all three of these Proverbs of Solomon is that word sluggard. It means a lazy person. Someone with no drive or ambition. Someone looking to take advantage of the hard work of others so that they don't have to lift a finger to help themselves. So Solomon begins with a challenge. Actually, it's in verse 1 of Proverbs 6. The challenge is for his son. My son, listen to these words. 
And in those Proverbs, he talks then about sluggards, about lazy people. He's concerned that his own children learn the value of hard work and not be characterized as lazy. And so he says to his son, go to the ant, observe her ways, and be wise. David Hubbard in the Communicator's Commentary series writes about the irony of teaching using an ant as an illustration for a human being. Listen to what he says. The bite of sarcasm is felt in the contrast between the diligence of the ant and the indolence of the sluggard. The contrast is humiliating. A person five feet tall and weighing 130 pounds or so is told to let an ant be the teacher. An ant less than a quarter of an inch long weighing a slight fraction of an ounce. A person with gifts of speech with a brain the size of a whole anthill is told to bend over, peer down, and learn from the lowly ant. The irony is powerful. And I agree. And I think that's the whole reason God the Holy Spirit led Solomon, the writer, to use that illustration because it's a powerful one. Go to the ant and learn. Solomon's point here is that this tiny little creature that sometimes gets into our houses and into our food supplies and so on, needs no one but his creator, his God, to tell him to get to work and provide plenty for himself and to do it in plenty of time. But that brings up next in this psalm a controversy. The controversy has to do with some questions that now come to the obviously lazy person. Two questions. How long are you going to just lie there? And when do you plan to get up and get going? I call that controversy because those are controversial questions for a person who thinks they have the right to just lay around and do nothing and get their beauty sleep. Over the years, I've spoken many times to college-age young people about ministry. And I've urged them to take to heart a very valuable piece of advice that I like to give about doing the work of the Lord. So I tell them this. I say, get out paper and a pencil or a pen and write this down and memorize it. And I really play it up big. I say with emphasis, here it is. These are the most important words of advice I know to give about doing the work of the ministry, the work of the Lord. Here it is. Ready? Get out of bed. And I get some giggles like that every time. But it's true. It's true about everything in life. You're not going to make it in the business world. You're not going to make it in, uh, on the job or in ministry for the Lord unless you get out of bed and get going. We cannot be lazy. There are consequences to folding of the hands to sleep. And I'm not talking about sleeping at night when most of us sleep. Neither is Solomon. He's talking about the person who sleeps all the time. Who's making a groove in the bed or in the couch. There are consequences. We see it in our society today. In cities and communities large and small. It's right here in Preston. In the year 2013, 45 million people of working age were living in poverty. And that's one of the consequences of being lazy. Now, not everybody who's living in poverty is lazy. 
Some live below the poverty level because they literally can't find work these days. Or because they're getting a minimum wage job and they have to support a large and growing family with that job. I understand that. But Solomon is talking here about the person who ends up in poverty and need by choice. The choice of, I'm not going to work. Solomon wants his son to know that inactivity, if that's going to be our lifestyle, is going to bring poverty and neediness. So now turn just a little ways over in the book of Proverbs to chapter 24. A similar text. Solomon again emphasizes this same matter of laziness and how wrong it is before a holy God. Proverbs 24, starting at verse 30. He says, I passed by the field of the sluggard and by the vineyard of the man lacking sense. And behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with nettles and its stone wall was broken down. When I saw, I reflected upon it. I looked and received instruction. The implication there is, son, you need to get this instruction too. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Same phrases he used in Proverbs 6. Then your poverty will come as a robber and your want like an armed man. That also is a repeat of Proverbs 6. Why does Solomon repeat it? Because he's run out of words? (laughs) No. He's led by the Holy Spirit to repeat something so important as the value of hard work and the consequences of carelessness about this subject. Solomon personally witnesses the carelessness of a lazy man. He describes this person, by the way, with the word and in the opening part of that section I read. He describes this person as lacking common sense. It just makes sense that if you're going to provide for yourself or for your family, you're going to have to work. That makes sense. But this person doesn't have that sense. So what he notices is that the man's field that should have been productive with crops growing on it, and this vineyard that should have been producing grapes is overgrown with weeds, both. And not just any weeds. Did you notice it? Thistles and nettles. The kind of weeds that would discourage a neighbor, for example, from coming over and helping clean up. (laughs) Some of us have had the experience of grabbing a, a handful of weeds and right in the middle of it is some stinging nettles. Ooh, that hurts. If you don't have gloves on, that's very painful. Clumsy as I am, I've done that before. So not only are there weeds everywhere, but also the wall of protection around his house is broken down. It's clear that he has no concern for himself or his family and their safety. We all know with the amount of rain we've had lately how quickly weeds can grow. And we know how difficult and tiring it can be to get those weeds cut down, removed. I took truckloads of weeds to the landfill from our property. And then again, if you're grabbing those kinds of thistles and thorns and nettles, it's painful. So Solomon here in this passage then talks about a curse. A curse on the lazy man. 
When I think of curses as it relates to weeds, I think of Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Right after Adam and Eve sinned against God, God pronounced their judgment and pronounced a curse on planet Earth. And here's what Genesis 3, 17 and 18 says. God speaking, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles shall it grow for you. So that's why we have weeds growing up in our yards. And you thought it was just because you weren't weed whacking and mowing. No, it's because of sin. Work, by the way, was not part of the curse on Adam and Eve before they fell in sin. Genesis 2.15 tells us that God gave Adam the assignment of cultivating and keeping care of the Garden of Eden, a beautiful place. The curse here in Proverbs 24 is a self-induced curse. It's the result of laziness. The result of saying, oh, I'll just kick back. I'll fold my hands. I'll take another nap. I'll let the weeds go. I'll let the crops fail. I'll let the vineyard die, shrivel up. I don't care. And so what happens is, in the end, there's a collapse. Not just that wall around his house, but a collapse of sense, of common sense. Poverty and need are again expressed here as the negative reward of laziness. And those words robber and armed man, because they've been repeated now in Proverbs 6 and Proverbs 24, they give us the sense that there is a collapse of productivity that affects the usefulness of that land. And it comes on strong and it has drastic consequences. Just like if a robber broke into your house or a man came dressed in a suit of armor and threatened your life. So those fields and those vineyards end up having no purpose at all. Why even have that land if you're not going to take care of it? That's the point. Why? Why did it get that way? Too much sleep. Not enough work. Some of us who know history realize that during the Industrial Revolution, things changed. Prior to the early 1800s, the Industrial Revolution, men and women and very young children all over the world worked 14 and 16 and 20 hour days. But there was one man named Robert Owen, he was a legislator from England, way back in 1810 during the Industrial Revolution began a push for a 40-hour work week. His slogan in order to get this through Parliament was this, eight hours of labor, eight hours of recreation, eight hours of sleep. Good plan, right? Solomon's sluggard would like to phrase that slogan this way, eight hours of recreation and 16 hours of sleep. Leave the work out of it altogether. I don't want to do that. One more proverb to consider about this lazy person. Turn one page over probably in your Bibles to chapter 26. Verse 13. Here Solomon says about 
the lazy man. The sluggard says there's a lion in the road. A lion is in the open square. As the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He is weary of bringing it to his mouth again. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. First of all, this lazy person makes some outlandish claims. Some excuses he gives for why he can't work. He claims there's a lion out there. I can't go out and go to work. I might get eaten by that lion that's just outside the house or he's in the town square where my job is. So I might as well go back to bed. I don't want to get attacked by this lion. In case you want to know what is so terrifying to him about this possible danger that's in his mind right outside the door, it's because also in his lazy mind, he's thinking that that animal outside his window is a lion when in reality that animal is making this sound. I want you to hear this. Meow. He's exaggerating everything. So he's making these outlandish claims. I can't go to work. Can you imagine telling your boss that? I can't go to work. There's a lion outside. I'm sure of it. That's not going to fly. He has so convinced himself of the possible danger out there that he states it twice. There's a lion out there. There's a lion in the square. No, there's someone lying about what's out there. And instead, he's lying on the couch and not doing his job. What's the real reason he won't work? He likes his cat naps. He's too busy flip-flopping on the couch or the bed. Sleep on the left side, sleep on the right side, sleep on the back, sleep on the tummy. He's just flipping like this door Solomon describes. It's back and forth on its hinges. In fact, the man is so lazy, this is an interesting picture, that he's sitting down to eat, he's got a piece of bread in his hand, he's dipping it in his bowl of soup, and he's so lazy he can't even get his hand back up to his mouth. He would much prefer it if somebody else would feed him. He's that lazy. And he's an adult. Unbelievable. That is lazy. He'd love it if somebody could feed him his supper. But there's more to this story of this sad picture of the sleepaholic. There are some characteristics that are true of him. One in particular, the issue of pride. His real problem is this false image that he has of himself. He thinks he's the smartest man on the planet. He thinks he knows better than everybody else how he can make money without even having to work. He's convinced convinced himself that working smart, that is, doing virtually nothing and have everybody else provide for me, is better than the person working hard. So this is the kind of person who'd rather take their chances on the lottery or, or Las Vegas than on a lot of work and sweat. People who study this stuff tell us that one out of every three Americans thinks that the best retirement plan is winning the lottery. One out of three. 
At the same time, they tell us that the chances of winning the lottery are 1 in 175,223,510. You're not going to win the lottery. Not going to happen. The smart money, the discreet answer that the seven other people give who actually work, is found in working hard, earning a wage, setting aside what belongs to God and giving it to Him and His work, and setting aside some for savings for down the road. So this thinking of hard work, earning a living, giving God a tenth or more, saving for the future, that goes against the grain for at least a third of our citizens. But that's exactly the point that I want to now make as we turn to the book of Titus in the New Testament, chapter 2. That's exactly the point about living out a testimony for the Lord, about making a difference in the way we approach our jobs, our work. If we want to walk with God in 2015, we can and should be the ones who are characterized as hardworking employees who want to honor God by doing our very best on the job. Look at Titus chapter 2 with me, starting in verse 9. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything. The context here is first century slavery. Some of those were conscripted slaves. Some of them were slaves by volunteer. And other reasons for being slaves, like being captured by the Roman government. But today that would compare favorably to an employee and a master, an employer. So there is an application here. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything. To be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. I'll stop right there for a moment and talk about Paul's concern. To really get a grip on Paul's concern here as he writes to his young uh, protege, Titus, we need to go back to chapter 1, verse 16, just a page back perhaps in your Bibles. There Paul says, They, referring to unbelievers, profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. In other words, they don't know how to work so as to honor God. They haven't even put their trust in Jesus. So Paul knows that there are many false believers out there who have no concern for what God says on any subject, let alone the subject of hard work, serving your employer well. So now as we zero in on verses 9 to 14 in chapter 2, Paul wants Timothy to urge slaves, or in our day employees, to be obedient and submissive to their bosses. That's the command. He follows the command with four principles. First a positive one, then a negative, and then flipping it, a negative one, and then a positive one. I want to talk about the two positive principles first. And then we'll examine Paul's caution to workers who want to walk with God and be a good testimony. Paul tells Titus, first of all, and tells us as employees, that we should seek to please our boss, to do our very best, to work with excellence, That's the key. And if we will do that, Paul would say to us, these words aren't in the text, but he certainly means it, if we do that, we're going to stand out. Because not many people work like that. 
We're going to stand out. We're going to be a testimony in a positive way. Here's a good question to ask yourself, and I need to ask myself because I have a job too, serving this church family. We need to ask ourselves, what kind of work would I do if Jesus were my boss? Well, guess what? He is your boss. If you know Jesus as Savior, He's your master in heaven. That ought to affect how we work. Not only do I need to be well-pleasing to my boss, I need to show, secondly, Paul says, good faith. That word faith translated in that context really means faithfulness or consistency, loyalty. Being there on the job every day, every shift, doing our best, responding with a hearty yes when the boss says, hey, could you do this or that? But then there are two cautions, two negatives to consider. Think about them with me. First of all, he says, don't argue with your boss. Just do your job. Talking back, being insubordinate, being opposed to what the boss says, causing a stink in the shop, that's the opposite of what should characterize the Christian as a worker. How many jobs are lost? There's no way to count this. But I wondered about this as I worked on this message. How many jobs are lost by an employee who got in the face of the employer or vice versa and they had an argument or it may have even come to blows? I'm sure there are many. So Paul is saying, don't argue. Secondly, don't steal from your boss. He uses another word that we don't use in uh, English much these days, pilfering. Don't pilfer from your boss. What does pilfer mean? The word literally means to lay aside separately. And it has reference to those slaves who were given the responsibility of taking the money that was earned from the crops down to what we now would call a bank. So he's been keeping the books, maybe doctoring the books. He takes the the money that's earned from those crops or that vineyard, takes it down to the bank. He comes back and tells his boss, there I deposited $10,355. He didn't tell the boss that he kept $2,156 out of that money. That's pilfering. In today's language, that would be uh, taking something from the job site. I've had friends who worked in the construction industry, and it's amazing how many times uh, employees steal tools on the job site. It happens all the time. Sometimes our attitude can be, hey, uh, I deserve that. I'm not getting paid enough as it is. But the key question here is, what is my motivation for this unique testimony of being a hard worker who's responsive in a positive way to the boss and keeps their hands off of things that don't belong to them? What's my motivation? What's the catalyst for doing this? The real catalyst is for saying, I'll do it God's way, is that we've been saved by grace. Look again at the text. For the grace of God, verse 11, has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us 
This grace of God not only saves us, it's a gift from God we don't deserve, but it teaches us, instructs us, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts or desires, we are to live sensibly or soberly, righteously and godly in the present age. So the first motivation is, God's been so good to me. He's been gracious to me. There's no reason why I can't follow His commands and obey my earthly master, my boss. No reason whatsoever. In verse 10, Paul gets very specific about this. Notice it with me. Not pilfering, showing all good faith or faithfulness that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. That word adorn comes from a Greek word that has to do with uh, putting something on display. It has to do with design and beauty. And so what Paul is really saying is, the way I work, if I'm a hard worker and I honor my boss, and as a result I honor God, I'm going to be on display showing God's design for the workplace for a Christian. And as people look at me, as people look at you on the job, they may well say, now that person is different. That person is unique. That person works hard where everybody else sloughs off. From the time they punch in until they punch out, for those who do that, they're giving it 100%. That's different. And that's what Paul is talking about here. That we're to be different in this matter of our jobs. But there's a second motivation for this rare, hard-working Christian to live this way. The coming of Christ. Look again at the text with me. God's grace has appeared. It teaches us. And in the process, verse 13, we're looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. God's grace motivated God to give His Son as a sacrifice for our sins. Verse 14, He gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself a people for His own possession. The King James says a peculiar people. That doesn't mean strange or oddball but it does mean different in a good sense. Different even when it comes to where we work and how we work. How people see us on the job. But here's another point. Jesus is coming again. He made that promise Himself and He never goes back on His promises. He is coming again. And Paul's point, I believe, by application is we're not going to have to slave away and sweat over our job forever. There's coming a day when Jesus will come back. He's going to take us to heaven and we will be forever at rest. There is a rest unto the people of God, it tells us in Hebrews chapter 4. That Paul calls the blessed hope. And by the way, hope for a Christian is not something we just wish for. It's something anticipated and assured. Anticipated and assured. It's as good as we're already there. Amen? Isn't that a great thing? That's our hope. 
That's our future. Jesus is coming back, and in the meantime, He tells all of us, Occupy till I come. Translation, stay busy serving the Lord. Stay busy doing well on your job. Stay busy serving in the church. We don't stay busy because busyness or hard work saves us. The grace of God saves us. We stay busy because we want to honor the grace of God. We don't do it to receive salvation, but to reflect the grace of God before others as a beautiful picture of what God can do to transform a soul and even a society. U.S. News and World Report just came out, and I mean two weeks ago, just came out with a list of the 25 best jobs of 2015. We're not even halfway through the year yet. Guess what number one on the list was, is, dentist. The average salary of an American dentist is $146,000 a year. That was number one on the list. But I'm sorry, they're wrong. That's not the best job. That's not the best work that God's people can do. The best work God's people can do is serving Him out of hearts of love as a thank you for His grace. And it brings with it an eternal reward. Not an annual salary, but an eternal reward. A reward beyond imagination awaiting us as a gift from Him. This morning we're going to close the service with a song that I trust is the testimony of believers here today. The title of it is Until Then, but there are some wonderful words in this old hymn. I invite you to stand and sing it with me, and then I'll close in prayer. Until Then. My heart can sing when I pause to remember a heartache here is but a stepping stone along a trail that's winding always upward this troubled world is not my final home but until then my heart will go on singing until then with joy I'll carry on until the day My eyes behold the city Until the day God calls me home This weary world With all its toil and trouble May take its toll Of misery strive the soul of man is like a waiting falcon 
When it's released, it's destined for the sky. But until then, my heart will go on singing. Until then, with joy I'll carry on. Until the day my eyes behold the city. Until the day God calls me home. Until the day God calls me home.